Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from Scott on the people Paul wrote the letter of Romans to. Good morning. I like to read other people's mail. In part, I am what the British call a nosy parker. But in part, it's because of the, the thrill of discovering the private world of other people. To be honest, some people have published their letters and invite us into their private world. I've spent long hours reading the private mails of E.B. White, where he goes by the name Andy, and those of us who know that call him Andy White. Orwell's letters are stylistically similar to his famous prose and even more opinionated. (laughs) Dorothy Sayers letters reveal a very strange oddity that she had a child out of wedlock and gave it to a relative. It makes the other books kind of (laughs) weird. The top of my list of letters to read are those of Flannery O'Connor. Spunk opinion, flashes of caustic humor, and one can be expected to be shocked and to hear her capacity to be judgmental on the follies of everyone except herself. Her correspondence, called The Habit of Being, begins with a letter to her editor, Elizabeth McKee. It's about the publisher Reinhardt, and the editor apparently did not like her first novel, which came to be called Wise Blood. Here are her words. The criticism is vague and really tells me nothing except they don't like it. I feel the objections they raise are connected with its virtues. And the thought of working with them specifically to correct these lacks they mention is repulsive to me. The letter is addressed to a dim-witted campfire girl and I cannot look with composure on getting a lifetime of others like them. (laughs) I have not yet answered the letter and won't until I hear further from you, but if I were certain that Harcourt was interested, we would go with them. The next day, instead of waiting for her editor to respond, she wrote to the publisher, the editor at Reinhardt named John Selby. And she says, I think, however, that before I talk to you, my position on the novel and on your criticism in the letter should be made plain. I can only hope that in the finished novel the direction will be clearer, but I can tell you that I would not like at all to work with you as do other writers on your list. I feel that whatever virtues the novel may have are very much concerned with the limitations that you mentioned. In short, I'm amenable to criticism, but only within the sphere of what I am trying to do. I will not be persuaded to do otherwise. The finished book, though I hope less angular, will be just as odd, if not odder, than the nine chapters you have already. The question is, is Reinhardt interested in publishing my kind of novel? I like that. 
that's the way to talk to an editor. <laughs> Not really. Now, Ethan's a nice guy. He wouldn't do that. Off, off to Harcourt, wise blood went, and Flannery O'Connor became famous for it. Flannery O'Connor's letters are not unlike the Apostle Paul's letters. They are written to someone and only for that someone, and that someone's relationship to Paul determined what he had to say. There's candor, plenty of opinion, and there's language that strikes home line after line. But we have a problem called Romans. Romans has a problem today. Romans is not read today because so many are so attached to the kingdom vision of Jesus, when they get to Romans, it doesn't make sense. Romans, however, is the most significant document in the history of the church's theology. Augustine's conversion occurred reading Romans or having someone say something about Romans. Luther's theology was shaped by Romans. Calvin's Institutes are a form of the book of Romans. Wesley's evangelistic message and theology were Romans-based. Jonathan Edwards, he was a Romans kind of guy. The Awakenings preached a gospel on the basis of Romans, and Billy Graham's Romans Road, well, it's from Romans. (laughs) So Romans is pretty important, but Romans has fallen out of favor. Somewhere between the 1960s and the 1970s, evangelicalism shifted, except for the Reformed and the Lutherans, who aren't shifting anywhere. (laughs) At least on the Book of Romans, they're not. They shifted toward the Gospels, evangelicalism did, toward kingdom theology, toward justice, and toward social justice. And Romans has fallen out of favor. I know, because my college students for 17 years, it was like root canals getting them interested in what this book was about. Romans uh, falling out of favor has also been complicated by my friends and teachers and fellow scholars. E.P. Sanders wrote a book that definitely messed with Romans. Jimmy Dunn then complicated it by developing what is called the new perspective. And then N.T. Wright came along, and now I have my friends and former students who are pastors who say they're afraid of preaching Romans because they don't know whether to be old perspective or new perspective, and it really makes a difference. So this series, in a sense, about Romans is about redeeming Romans for the church. That's Amanda's expression, although I should be blamed for everything that happens. So I want to to bring up a few points about this magnificent book called Romans, or it's a letter called Romans. And I want to talk about some things that most people don't know when they think about the book of Romans, because many of you think about Romans and getting lost about chapter 4, maybe 5, certainly in 7, and what is going on in 9 through 11, right? It's not normally a home Bible study book. So I want to talk about some things that I hope will bring this letter to life so that you'll think of Romans the way you think of Flannery O'Connor writing a real letter, all right? Not as many ghastly images. (laughs) The first thing I'd like to say is that Romans 
was not so much read as it was originally performed. And it was probably performed by Phoebe. The face of Romans was a woman. Her name is Phoebe. In Romans 16, 1 to 2, we get in the slot of what's called a letter carrier or a courier. There's some discussions here, but everything in Romans has discussions. I commend to you, Romans 16, 1 to 2, Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea, which is next to Corinth. It's on the port, the Saronic Gulf. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been, made the, bene- she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe, as I said, is in the location of a letter carrier. She carried the letter from Cancrea or Corinth all the way to Rome. A letter carrier's responsibility, number one, was to answer any private questions about Paul that people had. Secondly, they had to make sure that letter got to the right people. And we are not absolutely certain of this, except I'm certain of this, is that in this case, she not only delivered the letter, She read the letter. She read the letter aloud. How many of you have ever read Romans aloud? Zero. (laughs) She probably read the letter at least five times aloud in Rome as a result of this trip because there are probably at least five house churches mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Okay, So she's way ahead of you and way ahead of me on her capacity to know about Romans. It is important to remember that Romans, not only that, when, when, she, when she read the letter, when it was done, if anyone was still awake, she would have had to answer all the questions. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 7. Questions galore, and it was, it was Phoebe's responsibility to answer these questions. Romans, it must be remembered, was not originally a text read before an expository sermon. Okay? It was a letter, a real letter from a real guy to real people. It was not written so people could have discussions about justification and theology endlessly and have debates in classrooms. Vital to this letter is to realize that people like Paul, this is from Romans 16, and Timothy, and Tertius, and Gaius, and Erastus were involved in preparing Phoebe for her reading or performing of this letter. And Paul would have said, now look, when you read this passage, look this guy right in the face. And when you get to these words... Pause. There are some 31 questions in Romans 9 to 11. She didn't read the questions and immediately answered them. She stopped. And the people in the room had to answer the question. And if you get asked 31 questions within the span of three chapters, you feel like you're being interrogated by a lawyer. Exactly what she was supposed to be doing. This letter puts some people in a corner. 
and hot is what the letter is. And she was prepared and coached. So she didn't lock down her head the way we do when we read Scripture for sermons. And I'm saying that about myself. There are many people who believe that she had this letter memorized. And so when she read it, she performed it, and all she needed was cheat sheets. She'd look at the text, and then she'd just start talking. And when she looked at the audience, if they didn't understand it, she ad-libbed extemporaneously and clarified what they were, what they were wondering about because she could see it in her faces. Furthermore, her audience was not Anglicans. <laughs> they were Pentecostals. In other words, they responded. They didn't just sit there and go, with Mona Lisa smiles. They responded and said, really? Ooh, that's cool. And the other people would say, I hate that. Why would he even say that? So there would be questions going on, back and forth as the letter was being read. Real letter to real people. Now, who are these people? That's what I'd like to look at next, and I think you have a handout. All right? This is the best I could do. I know this is a sermon, but I'm a professor. Okay? If you can look at the map. You have one for me? All right. If you can look at the map. This is Rome, and this Tiber River is run, snakes through the city of Rome. You have one? Okay. And we know from archaeological information as good as archaeological information will give us, that the earliest Christians lived in these checked places. This is on the basis of the great research of Peter Lampe. And um, uh, the area to the left of the river over here is called Trastevere. And this is where the poor people who worked with transportation and um, exports and imports worked. It smelled. It's where the tanners lived people who worked with leather, and this is probably where the Christians took root alongside synagogues. And also along the Apian Way, and this is an area that could have, could have carts and noise and horses at night, but not during the day, because it would bother the quietude of the forum. And the Christians lived there in the noisy slot of Rome. Right, so this is approximately where they lived. Now, on the other side, we find out who these people were. And let me say a few things about this. Christianity was planted in Rome by Jewish believers in connection with synagogues. This, this is normal in the first century. In 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled Jews. This is the technical term, but many people think it was Jewish Christians, among whom were Priscilla and Aquila, who showed up in the Pauline mission because they got kicked out of Rome by Claudius in 49. When Nero becomes emperor, Nero, who becomes, I think the Christian word for Nero is idiot. <laughs> he becomes just an absolute pain. Uh, but early in his uh, emperor, as an emperor, he offered hope to people. The economy was starting to grow. He was starting to build things. And it looks like he relaxed Claudius's decree, and the Jewish believers returned, and they discovered a Gentile church where they were eating pork and shrimp and who knows what else. And they found themselves at odds with what was going on in the Christian community. 
Now, Paul decides to call these people the weak and the strong. It is a now, by the time the Jewish believers return, a Gentile-dominated church. Formerly, it was comfortable, you know. They were all King James-only people. And now they're reading John Golden Gay's Old Testament and Tom Wright's New Testament, and it's getting squirrely in the church. So there's tension in this community between the weak and the strong. Paul calls them weak, and I, I want to go through this simply because you can't read Romans until you understand this, all right? And frankly, because it's so late in the book, people are exhausted by the time they get there, and they forget about it. Seriously, this is what happens. So you have to start in the back. That's a clever idea. Read Romans backwards, okay? The weak are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election and need to be affirmed in their election but who have questions about the faithfulness of God to his election of Israel and who need to embrace the surprising moves of God in Israel's history. The weak know the Torah. They practice the Torah. But in the person, I call him the judge in Romans chapter 2, they sit in judgment on Gentile believers, especially the strong in the Christian community, even though these weak have no status, privilege, or power. The weak are tempted to resist paying taxes to Rome on the basis of the Jewish zealotry tradition. That's Romans 13. In addition, the weak, in the face of the judge, need to apply faith in Christ more radically to themselves. So discovering that they are a new example of the remnant of Israel, and they need to see that the sufficiency of faith means that Gentile believers in Christ are siblings, so that they so that they see that Torah observance is not the way of transformation for either themselves or the strong in Rome. Paul's hard on the weak. And when you call people weak, it's never a compliment. All right, so he's labeled them. And he's called himself the strong. He who writes the story controls the glory. So Paul has decided that his position is the way of God for the Roman churches. And he's with the strong. And they can eat shrimp if they want. And it's okay, because even though it's unclean to the weak, it is clean to God. The strong are predominantly Gentiles who believe in Jesus as Messiah, who do not observe the Torah as the will of God, and who have condescending and despising attitudes, probably toward Jews, but especially toward Jewish believers in Jesus. And all this is wrapped up in the superior, higher status of the strong. Paul uses the word dunamoi, the powerful. And one time in in Romans 15, we translate weak, but it's adunatoi, the powerless. And this is a social status. It's not just they have the right ideas. It's not just they have money. It's status. And they have status and power, and the weak have none. Paul and the Jewish believers who embrace the non-necessity of Torah observance are at least at times among the strong in their theological convictions about Torah observance as the way of following Christ. But the strong are taking advantage of their superior social status to denigrate the Torah and holiness as the quest of Christians in Rome. So they are coercing the weak into table fellowship over non-kosher food. 
So they invite him to dinner and serve only pork. Go hungry or eat with us. I'm, I'm making that up, but that's pretty close. The strong, then, are as known for their positions on observance of Torah and for their, or as for their status and their ethnicity. So these are real people with real issues and really strong opinions. The weak thought they were right. They had the Bible on their side. Have you ever read Leviticus, was their question to the strong. The strong knew they were right. They said, we follow Paul. It's a problem of diversity and disunity and privilege and power and status. Paul didn't write Romans so John Piper and Tom Wright could accuse one another of being campfire dimwits. (laughs) He wrote because of these people who were not getting along. And until we see the people not getting along, the strong and the weak, is what this letter is about, we won't understand Romans from the beginning. All right? He wrote so that people would learn how to live with one another. He wanted peace in the heart of the empire in the church. He didn't want the status issues of the Roman Empire to infiltrate the church. He didn't want the politics of culture to influence the church. He said, you are siblings. Siblings are in a family together, and they eat together, and they don't gather together to argue, unless they're Irish. (laughs) They gather together to enjoy one another's fellowship as siblings and family members. And that's why the letter of Romans was written. He knew that when God's people living together in unity from our psalm today, it was like precious oil poured on the head, like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. That's what he knew was supposed to happen. So, the letter was performed by Phoebe. The letter was addressed to the strong and the weak in Rome. And when Phoebe is reading chapters... You read Romans 1 through 4 with your eye on the weak, you know who Phoebe's looking at. And she's looking right at him. She's looking right at him. She's not saying, you know, I'm hoping nobody makes eye contact with me. Paul said, no, give them a good hard stare. Let them know this is about them. And so when she, when, when she reads Romans 14 and talks and says to the strong, you know, don't argue with them. They're supposed to, she's supposed to look at the strong, not look away from them. Don't be afraid of eye contact. Make these words sink strong. Make them hear these clearly. So what was the vision? So this is Romans 12 through 16 in five minutes. All right? The first is this. Paul wants each person to offer his or her body to God. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This means from the time you get up till the time you go to bed, you are here for God. Offer everything you say, everything you do, everything you hear, everything you make money with, every part of your business is to be offered to God. 
The only way the strong and the weak, the diversity can be turned into unity, the only way these divisions can be eliminated is when each person every day decides my life is for God. Not for myself, not for my party, but for God. It's a here am I kind of life. A life for God pulls one away from the empire in Rome, away from status, privilege, and power. The second thing that Paul calls them to do is to discover what they can give to the others in the house churches of Rome. This is one of those famous passages in, in Paul's letters where he gives, talks about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12. After they give themselves to God, give yourselves to the other members of the church. And these are called gifts. What do you do with gifts? You give them to others. So what we are called to do is for the sake of other people. When your life is given to God and you give your gifts to other people, you can create peace in the heart of the empire. The strong and the weak can get along when they give themselves to God and give their gifts to others. You are a gift to the Church of the Redeemer, each of you. I'm totally against this idea that we have to list the spiritual gifts in Romans and 1 Corinthians and come up with a master list and then pick your one, okay? Now, I know people do that, and I'll forgive them for the moment <laughs> as I correct them. We have to ask what the Spirit is using us for the good of others is. That's our gift. And it'll probably correspond to some of those gifts, and it might not. I mean, what about Amanda on that instrument? That's not on one of the lists, so let's call it helps. No, let's call it music. All right? It's music. And we all benefit from music in the, in the Christian world. And we are grateful to God for the gift that people have in music, right? There are all kinds of gifts that people have that aren't in that list. What it is it that you have to offer other people in the church? The gifts are what happens when the Spirit of God uses you for the good of other people in the body. That's your gift. Third, Paul says that we are to live a loving public life. From Romans 12, 17 through chapter 13, verse 10, Paul actually turns to how the Christians are to live in the public realm, which matters in Rome. You can see where they're living. It's tough. Nobody had sprawling estates where they could spend their afternoon in leisure. They were, it was compounded noise on top of one another. Tenements, apartments that weren't very attractive. And he starts in 1270. Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And he goes all the way through chapter 13, verse 10, where he finishes it off saying, we are to be people who love God and love others. So let love be our only debt. And this is in the context of talking about taxes. Be compassionate, he says. Be peaceful. Be good. One of the strong terms for Paul in Romans, is to be peaceful people, all right? So we are to give our bodies to God, we are to give our gifts for the body of Christ, and we are to live a loving public life. 
The whole book of Romans can be reduced to one word. I know this is a game that people play. Right. The word is welcome. This was an operative term in Romans. God has welcomed us. Romans chapter 14, verse 3. The strong are to use their status and power and privilege in Rome to welcome the weak. The strong are to use their power to empower the weak, not to overpower the weak. They don't have power over in the gospel. They have power for. And they are to welcome the weak. And they, according to Romans 15, 7 then, are to welcome one another, to receive one another. What does this mean? You know what this means in the first century? Eat with one another without arguing. We eat with one another here every Sunday. We eat at the table. We walk down this aisle together, and we share the bread and the wine. And this is a form of living the entire book of Romans, even though we don't know it. That's what Romans wanted, because they were coming into the congregations and going in separate directions. We return to tables outside this room in the lobby and share coffee. And if you don't drink coffee, I don't know what else there is. Tea, tea, okay. And, and food, and we share with one another. This is, a, this is what Romans is all about. We are to see each other as siblings, not as Republicans and Democrats, not as educated, not as doctors. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, siblings. This is the most common word Paul uses for the church. Do you know this? Rarely uses the word church compared to siblings, brothers and sisters. A hundred and almost 130 times in his letters, he refers to the people in the church as siblings. We are brothers and sisters. The table is the place where we welcome one another. Welcome to Rome in the first century. Real people receiving a real letter from a really irritated apostle about some bad practices happening in Rome. And he says, you know, I've said some strong things in Romans 15. I want to say some? About a lot. And he gives a series of commands to people. This is how you have to live. Because he knows that the gospel is on the line in Rome. If the Jews and the Gentiles who are believers in Christ can transcend those differences and eat together in peace, the gospel will be embedded in the heart of the empire. That's Paul's message of Rome.